Welcome to COPcast from Climate Home News. I'm Megan Darby, Deputy Editor at Climate Home News, and I'm joined by our senior reporter, Sarah Stefanini. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Megan. Uh, On today's episode, Michael Lazarus from the Stockholm Environment Institute tells us what it was like to take part in a Talanoa with ministers from around the world. Um, What did this Pacific storytelling tradition bring to the UN climate process? We'll find out shortly. Uh, I'd like to thank the Stockholm Environment Institute for supporting this podcast. Uh, We'll talk a bit about their work later and you can find more information at sei.org. First, the news. Uh, Ministers have been sharing their national climate stories in the Pacific-inspired Talanoa dialogue today. In parallel, officials were tidying up the draft rules for the Paris Agreement, ready for politicians to engage with the contentious bits. And uh, UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres is expected to return to COP24 on Wednesday and knock a few heads together, perhaps shake out a little bit more ambition. Um, Meanwhile, Sarah took advantage of what has been a relatively calm day to find out how indigenous groups are getting involved. Um, Sarah, what's the story? Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed, Megan, but there's a much bigger presence of indigenous groups at this COP than in the past. And it's because they, in very sort of UN style, they've spent the last three years negotiating a platform that basically creates plans to keep working but the platform is a way for indigenous groups and um, local communities who are still undefined um, to give input and share their experiences and their advice on how to cope with climate change that could be anything from sort of knowing how to read the changes in the wind to protect weather it could be sort of protecting forests, biodiversity, you know, they argue that they're the closest to nature and they've protected it more than anyone else and they have a say. Um, But as in true UN style, it did get contentious last week when they were agreeing this platform, mainly because China had an issue with the word, the term local communities, and it wanted language in this platform that made clear that this platform would not infringe on sovereignty and state rights. And that's because China doesn't have indigenous groups, which are actually officially recognized. But local communities could one day refer to Taiwan, it could refer to Tibet, it could refer to anyone, any sort of community that organizes and asks to be represented. So it turned out contentious. Indigenous groups didn't love having the sovereignty in there, but they did agree something. Okay, great. Um, And now let's turn to Michael Lazarus for the lowdown on Talanoa. So... I was I was surprised by the the inspiration in the room. There was a buzz on the floor. You know, the ministers are coming. Um, you know, roped off security. A sense that all of a sudden it's getting more real in the Talanoa. And in the room that I was in, we had the Netherlands, we had Israel, Malta, the city of Oslo, and Tuvalu and Marshall Islands. So an interesting set of perspectives. And what I saw there was, was a number of countries who had really taken Talanoa to heart. Uh, the Netherlands had taken part in a Benelux Talanoa of their own. They're developing a strategy, increasing their ambition to 50% below 1990 levels by 2030. Uh, heavily invested in an inclusive process for developing these plans. We heard that from Israel, I was surprised to hear is phasing out coal. 
Um, I'm not sure that had... Did they have a lot of coal to start with? <laughs> well, according to the minister, they were 70% dependent upon coal just a few years ago. They've ramped it down to 30. They're aiming for zero. They're aiming for um, to get rid of petroleum products in cars. Um, hadn't heard much about that. And to join the Powering Past Coal Coalition. So folks in the room seem to be really stepping up in ambition a bit. What's different about this format compared to other sort of high-level um, events of this kind where you get ministers together? I mean, NGOs are invited into the room and um, talking sort of on an equal footing with ministers, would you say? I mean, tell me about the, the kind of dynamics there. Yeah, well, that's the lovely thing about Talanoa is right from the start, the minister of the Marshall Islands who was moderating. So this is an informal event, you know, put away the notes or don't read from your notes. And people pretty much didn't. Um, we talked to each other. We talked back and forth a bit um, in supportive ways, building upon each other. Um, it was it was different. It was very. There was none of the dear, honorable, esteemed ministers to begin the whole thing off. Um, the guard was down. It was good. And um, and tell me about because you, you uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You, you're mainly you were here to talk about um, you know, what policy wonks call uh, you know, supply-side climate policy and uh, what campaigners call keep it in the ground. Um, or is, is that right? And, and tell me a bit about the kind of message and the story you were telling. Sure. Um, the story I told was basically the story of SEI as a research organization having focused for about 25 years, almost exclusively, at least in the mitigation side and the reducing emissions side on energy efficiency, renewable energy, carbon markets, carbon pricing, and we still believe in doubling down on all those efforts. But about five years ago, we kind of noticed that a lot of folks were talking about something else. Um, it was not just citizen mobilization, it was places like, uh, conventional places like International Energy Agency and OECD. They were talking about the need to leave two-thirds of fossil fuels in the ground and the risks of carbon entanglement um, uh, being a major risk for achieving our goals. So we have been doing research in that area for five years, and I shared some of the insights from that. And, and break that down a little bit for us. Like, what, what do we mean by carbon entanglement? What, what kind of things are we talking about? Well, carbon entanglement is, it goes by another phrase like carbon lock-in. That basically means that the, the revenues and um, the economies that are built around the extraction of fossil fuels, those revenues make it difficult for countries to move away. They're dependent upon it. Businesses are dependent upon it. Um, it and that entanglement of investment, and especially when you're doing new investments right now in expensive pipelines or offshore oil fields or coal terminals, you're going to want to use them for 30 years. Um, okay, so I mean, give, it, give me some examples of economies um, like that you've sort of looked at in, in more detail that um, that maybe have this entanglement problem and, and can't really recognise uh, or, or are struggling to deal with the, the kind of economic implications of moving away from fossil fuels. Well, I mean, you know, being based in the United States, one doesn't have to look very far. So you see that the politics can get infused by this entanglement. In Washington State, for instance, where I live, there was a carbon tax initiative that went down to defeat with $30 million spent by largely BP and other oil interests um, to defeat it. Uh, you know, that 
in my mind, is a sign of carbon entanglement, that these interests um, are invested in these outcomes and it's hard to move away from them. And you see that in the general politic there. So there's lots of places we're seeing right now um, where carbon entanglement is at play here in the negotiations and elsewhere. And you also see signs of other countries that are moving away. Yeah, and, and so let's go back to the Talanoa. And what, um, did you hear anything from ministers around this theme of, um, of carbon entanglement or carbon lock-in and how they're trying to move past that? You know, interestingly, no, and I, I wasn't particularly surprised. Um, the countries in the room were not large fossil fuel producers, um, and the focus is on solutions that folks have already tried and shown success with. And part of Talanoa is an opportunity to realize what might be outside the box that has yet to be considered as seriously. That's why we wanted to bring that issue to the table. Mostly folks were talking about their experiences in fully electrifying the city of Oslo, for instance, or creating um, dialogues in Malta and elsewhere that mobilize citizenry to realize the local benefits of reducing pollution. So I wasn't surprised to not hear it in the room itself, and that's in part why we were there. You've got some notes scrawled on your folder there, um, the, the kind of takeaways from the Talanoa from the chair. Um, anything that jumps out at you from those? None of them are particularly surprising, but all of them are very relevant and important right now with the state of the negotiations. One is obviously lead by example, and that's what we're seeing in rooms like Talanoa is to inspire others with success. Uh, one of the key points was an inclusive dialogue because that's the success of Talanoa and what we're seeing right now is a risk that the global stock take and other parts of these processes could exclude civil society. And Talanoa serves to remind that a lot of ideas and support for action comes from civil society and including research organizations, um, helping countries to understand the implications of various policy measures. There was also uh, a statement of strong support for the IPCC 1.5 report. And I, will, I would imagine you'd see that coming from the Talanoa dialogue. And I think the aim is to have these messages end up as a declaration that is put forward in front of the COP and accepted. That's it for this COPcast. I've been Megan Darby. Thanks to Sara Stefanini and our producer, Soila Aparizio. Don't forget to follow us on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Copcast is also available on other good podcast apps. Climate Home News is on Twitter and Facebook, and you can subscribe to our newsletter by going to www.climatechangenews.com. See you tomorrow.